So as I was studying for this sermon, I couldn't help but think of two things. The first thing that I continually thought about was this. Christ knows his church. I'm going to say that again. Christ knows his church. This reality is observed throughout these first few pages of the book of Revelation. As we began this study, we observed in chapter 2, verse 2, Jesus telling the Ephesian church the following. He said, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. He continues in verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. As Jesus addresses the church at Smyrna, he says in Revelation 2.9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And again, from part of the text that we'll be looking at today in Revelation 2.13, Jesus tells the church in Pergamum, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Redeemer Fellowship, here is a word of encouragement. As Jesus knew the church at Ephesus, as Jesus knew the church at Smyrna, and as we'll see today, as Jesus knew the church at Pergamum, Jesus knows you. That should be a great word of encouragement. Jesus knows Redeemer Fellowship. He knows all that you have endured, especially what you have endured here in the year 2020. So in all this craziness that we have called 2020, Jesus knows exactly what you have gone through. Whether it's dealing with a worldwide pandemic for the last seven plus months and all that that has entailed, or whether it's dealing with the leaving of several pastors or the leaving of fellow congregants, Jesus knows. He knows of your hardships, whether it be the loss of a job or just plain weariness because of the loss of fellowship with one another as week after week we've endured this pandemic. Jesus knows and Jesus cares and his invitation still stands where he says, come unto me, all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly at heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus knows his church. The second thing that I noticed was that Christ loves his bride, the church. I'll say that again. Christ loves his bride, the church. And I say that with such emphasis because as I look at the first couple of paragraphs, of the book of Revelation, I observe that Christ loves his church so much that he takes the time to commend his church 
so that they might continue in the faith and not lose heart. But he also admonishes his church when needed so that they might repent and the sin that is found within them might be removed. So he loves us enough to commend us, to further encourage us, and to admonish us that we would repent. We observed this pattern of approbation in the address to the Ephesian church and the church at Smyrna. We read in, also read rather in chapter 2-4 Jesus' words of correction to the Ephesian church because they had abandoned their first love. As we look at Jesus' words to the church at Pergamum today, we are going to continue to see this pattern as Jesus gives them both words of affirmation but also words of admonishment. So how does Jesus commend the church at Pergamum? As we noted earlier, Jesus tells the church at Pergamum in verse 13 that he knows where they dwell. To reiterate, it says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Understanding the church of Pergamum dwells is key to understanding why Jesus commends them. There are many notions as to what dwelling where Satan's throne is, is meant or what is meant by that, but scholars unanimously agree on these two suggestions. Dwelling where Satan's throne is could refer to the fact that Pergamum was the first city in the region of Asia Minor to build a temple for emperor worship, and it was the leading center for this idolatrous practice in the province. So if you were an individual back then and you wanted to get your emperor worship on, Pergamum was the place to go. The other noted suggestion was that Pergamum had many people within the province who worshipped Asclepius, the god of healing, whose symbol was a serpent, which according to one commentator may have contributed to Christ's view of the city as a center of satanic authority. In any event, all the suggestions of what this phrase of dwelling where Satan's throne is points to this. The church at Pergamum was in the midst of a pagan idolatrous people. So much so that Satan's presence is felt there. Although this is the case, listen to what the church in Pergamum does in response to where they dwell and how Jesus commends them for it. Continuing in verse 13, it says, Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So not only does the church in Pergamum dwell among unbelievers, but they dwell among hostile unbelievers. This is evident by the language used in verse 13. We can deduce that the church in Pergamum was under severe of Jesus. So this isn't Jesus just commending his church at Pergamum because every Sunday the preacher faithfully exhorted the word of God or because every Wednesday the word of God is faithfully going forth in the Wednesday night Bible study. No, it's much more than this. 
These people are in the midst of severe persecution. And here's further evidence of this severe persecution. They even held fast to Jesus' name and did not deny him, even when a faithful witness of Jesus' name, Antipas, was martyred for the faith. The church at Pergamum was persecuted to the extent that they had someone among their flock who was put to death for faithfully holding on to the name of Jesus. Now, we do not know much about Antipas, as he's not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, but verse 13 gives us all that we need to know. He was a faithful witness of Jesus who was martyred for his faith. And the very church that he belonged to was also noted for being faithful. So although their church was located in an area that was hostile to the gospel, they continued to bear witness to the name of Jesus without compromise. And thus, why Jesus commends them for their faith. Now, as I look at what the church of Pergamum is admonished for, especially in light of what they were just commended for, I find it very ironic. We just read that this very church holds fast to Jesus' name and that they do not deny his faith. But look at what verse 14 says. It says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And just so you know, based on the language here, the teaching of the Nicolaitans is synonymous with the teaching of Balaam. So we're not looking at two different teachings. The teaching is one and the same. It's the teaching of teaching folks to eat food that's sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual immorality. So wait a minute. How is it that the church that was just commended for holding fast to Jesus' name and not denying him, how is it that they have some among them who are teaching the people to commit idolatry and sexual immorality? They have some in their midst who are holding to the teaching of Balaam instead of the teaching of Jesus. Some scholars hold that it was the Gnostics who were more than likely spreading this teaching within the church at Pergamum because the Gnostics believed that salvation was for the soul only. So therefore, we can do whatever we want with our bodies, like practicing sexual immorality or eating food that has been sacrificed to idols. Now, if you remember this character Balaam, we find in the book of Numbers in chapters 22 through 24, at a time when Israel is concluding their wilderness wanderings and are starting to conquer different nations while en route to the promised land. I'm going to be reading from Numbers 22, verses 1 to 6, so you get a little flavor of who both Balaam and Balak are. Starting at verse 1, it says, Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan at Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people 
because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of the people of Amon, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too many for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. In the rest of chapter 22 through chapter 24 in the book of Numbers, Balak tries to get Balaam to curse the people of Israel, but he cannot do so because Balaam is commanded by God in 22.12 not to curse the people of Israel. So since Balaam is not allowed to curse the people of Israel, which would have been of great benefit to Balak, which would ultimately in Balak's mind, the people of Israel, he puts a stumbling block before them so that the people would hopefully implode from within. This is a numerous people. Left to myself, I'm not going to be able to defeat this people. So let's put a stumbling block before them so that they might their God and defeat themselves. Reading from Numbers 25, 1 through 6, we see what this stumbling block entails. You're going to see some of the same language that we just read back in Revelation. So reading from chapter 25, verse 1, it says, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger rather of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. I'm going to continue down to verse 9. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel. While they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Now pay attention to what I read next. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So we just noted in chapter 22 how numerous the people were. And now we see because of sin, because of them down and worshiping the God of Baal at Peor, they lose 24,000 from their midst because they would rather follow Baal than follow the true and living God. So due to their idolatry and sexual immorality at Peor, the people of Israel were judged by the Lord. 
And what we see in Israel is exactly what is going on with the people at the church of Pergamum. Just as the people of Israel committed sexual immorality with the daughters of Moab and made sacrifices to their gods and ate and bowed down to their gods and yoked themselves to Baal of Peor, some within the church at Pergamum were teaching the people to do the exact same thing. These individuals within the church were teaching the people that eating meat sacrificed to idols and practicing sexual immorality were okay for the Christian. When it comes to practicing sexual morality, immorality, rather, I think that that is somewhat self-explanatory, especially in our culture today. So I'm not going to delve too much into that. But what about eating meat sacrificed to idols? You know, typically, I'm imagining Detlef, as you work at a butcher shop, you're not dealing with too much meat that's been sacrificed to idols. So it's probably not something that we're really familiar with as we look at our culture today. So is Jesus simply admonishing the people for eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols? Or is there something more to this? If I'm comparing Scripture with Scripture, I'm going to say that there's something more to this than the simple practice of just eating meat. In 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 33, we read the following. And this comes from Paul. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. I'm going to put an emphasis here. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Now our most famous verse that a lot of us like to repeat time and time again. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. So if I'm in the midst of myself and I just purchased this meat and it's been sacrificed to idols and it doesn't hinder my conscience, I'm good. If I go to Sesti's house and Detlef brought meat, we find out that it's been sacrificed to idols and Sesti tells me, I am no longer at liberty to eat that meat. So there are certain occasions where it's fine, where it's not binding on my conscience. There are certain occasions where it's not fine, but that only deals with when it's hindering somebody else's conscience. So we see here it's based on certain circumstances 
that the believer can eat meat sacrificed to idols. So then, what is Jesus talking about when he says that some in the church are holding to the teaching of Balaam and essentially encouraging others to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Men here is the very same thing in Numbers 25 when the people of Israel were sacrificing, eating, and bowing down to Baal of Peor. These people at the church of Pergamum were teaching that it was okay to go to the temple feasts and partake in the feast. This is far different than just eating meat sacrificed to idols. Because as one commentator puts it, in attending the feast, the attendees were actively participating in the feast and therefore actually worshiping whatever false deity that the feast is dedicated to. So essentially, these people wanted to have the cake and eat it too. I could go to church on Sunday and worship the true and living God, and then I can go to these feasts on Wednesday and get my Baal worship or whatever the worship is. But Jesus makes it perfectly clear that this is not okay. In verse 16, rather, he tells the church at Pergamum to repent. In this verse, Jesus is not only speaking to those who hold or who are teaching the practice, he is speaking to the whole church at Pergamum. Jesus is telling the church to repent and to deal with this issue of sin. If not, he himself will come to them soon and war against them with the sword of his mouth. The usage of the sword brings us back to the account with Balaam in the book of Numbers. As Balaam was more than likely allured by Balak and his offer of silver and gold, and then goes to visit Balak in Numbers 22, after he's been told by the Lord not to, he goes and he encounters the angel of the Lord. In Numbers 22, 22 through 35, it says the following as he has this encounter. But God's anger was kindled because he went, and he is referring to Balaam. And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way of his adversary. Now he was riding on the donkey and his two servants were with him. And the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road with a drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey turned aside out of the road and went into the field. And Balaam struck the donkey to turn her into the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on either side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed against the wall and pressed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. Then the angel of the Lord went ahead and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. When the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. And here's irony right here. And Balaam's anger was kindled. So we had the Lord's anger being kindled in the beginning. Now we have Balaam's anger being kindled because this donkey is not doing what he's calling it to do. And he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me 
these three times. And Balaam said to the donkey, because you have made a fool of me, I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, no. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam, and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside before me these three times. If she had not turned aside for me, surely just now I would have killed you and let her live. Then Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I did not know that you stood in the road against me. Now, therefore, if it is evil in your sight, I will turn back. And the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, go with the men, but speak only the word that I tell you. So Balaam went on with the princes of Balak. So we see here that the sword denotes judgment. Jesus is looking to judge his church if fail to repent. And we see that Jesus emphasizes this warning as we read the beginning of verse 17 when he says, He who has an, an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's explicitly telling them to take heed to what he is saying as he calls them to repent. Because just as he dealt with the people of Israel during the time of Balaam and judged them for the same exact sin, the church of Pergamum could expect the same if they did not repent. Redeemer Fellowship, may we take heed to what the Spirit says to the churches. We cannot be a church that claims Christ, yet tolerates sin. I'm going to say that again. We cannot be a church. yet tolerates sin. And I'm not talking about tolerating the sin that the world commits, that we're typically so quick to call out on Facebook, Twitter, or whatever social media platform that we find ourselves on when the world throws their sin in our face. And the reason why I say that is you should not be surprised when the world acts like the world. But you should be grieved when the church acts like the world. And you should be quick to church when it does it. Because if we don't, and I know Pastor John has said this many of times, at that point then it's time to close up shop. Because we might be able to call ourselves many things, to call ourselves church because at the minded people we cannot claim Christ and tolerate sin it's sad when we're more apt to call out Netflix for their sin and I know you all know what I'm talking about when I bring that up yet when we have sin in our midst we do nothing about it we either gloss over it 
or we don't want to get involved, or we want to act like it's somebody else's problem. We are in this together. A little leaven, right? What does a little leaven do? It affects the whole lump. It cannot be that the only time we address something is when someone has a different political opinion than we do. So we're not going to deal with sin, but let somebody say they're voting for Donald Trump, now I'll address it. Or flip side, let somebody say they're going to vote for Joe Biden, now I'll get up and address that. We're more likely to do that than we are to call out actual sin, and that is sad. Now here's the thing. It is not a sin to have a different political opinion than someone else, unless we're going to put our hope in either candidate as if they are going to be the savior of America, because if we do that, then that is idolatry, and we're just like the people of Pergamum partaking in our emperor worship. So here's a little news flash for everybody that's worried. I'm going to go off on a little tangent. I apologize now. But for y'all that are worried about November 3rd, here's a little news flash. I'm going to give you three things to think about as we worry about November 3rd. On November 4th, I can guarantee three things. On November 4th, God will still be God. On November 4th, Jesus will still be king. On November 4th, the church will still stand because the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we can get all caught up on what's going to happen on November 3rd, but we need to be looking at November 4th and thinking on those three things because Jesus will still be king and his church will still be here standing because he is Lord of all. And that should get a hearty amen. In essence, if we do not address the sin that goes on within the church, we're doing the same thing that the folks at Pergamum were doing when they failed to address those who were holding to the teaching of Balaam. We must be a church that proclaims the name of Jesus and deals with sin. We must be. We must be. And we do this for a reason. It's what we've been called out to do. I'm sorry I'm reading so much, but I know when I read the word of God, I can't go wrong. So that's why I go to scripture as I explain these things. But listen to what Peter says. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So you weren't saved to remain in your former ways. You were saved so that you might be holy, just like God is holy. And that is the process of sanctification, right? The, the process of sanctification 
isn't so we can become more like a pastor or more like a president or more like whatever figure that we would want to put up there. The process of sanctification is me being more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that is why we cannot tolerate sin. And that is why we must be holy. Now, saints, Jesus expects us to deal with sin. And the beauty of his command to do so is that it comes with a promise. Take a look with me at verses 17 through 19. It says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. In keeping with the imagery of the Old Testament, manna was the bread from heaven, supplied to the Israelites during their wilderness wandering that God used to nourish them and sustain them. Some scholars hold that the hidden manna is a reference to the manna that was preserved in the ark that was put there as a reminder to the people that it was the Lord who fed them in the wilderness when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. These same scholars had many interpretations as to what the meaning of the manna, the white stone, and the new name on the white stone might be. But it's interesting to me that in contrast to the meat sacrificed to idols eaten at the temple feasts, Jesus tells the church at Pergamum, for the one who conquers or endures, their reward will be this hidden manna. And what makes this even more interesting is not only the Old Testament reference where we are reminded that God used this manna to nourish and sustain his people, but Jesus' very words in John chapter 6, 25 through 35. There we read the following. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. 
to the one who conquers, to the one who endures, to the one who remains faithful, you get Jesus and eternal life. So why settle for that food that is offered at the temple feast and perishes when you can have the food, the hidden manna, that endures to eternal life? Or better yet, why continue in practicing idolatry and immorality that leads to death when Jesus promises you life? Why? Why go back on your former ways when we have one before us who promises us life? I like how one commentator puts this section. He says, the inclusion of this symbol in the letter to Pergamum is in calculated contrast to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They eat food sacrificed to idols and are doomed to judgment by the sword of the Lord. The conqueror will eat the bread of heaven and be sustained in the kingdom by the power of the Lord. Saints, may we seek to conquer and endure. May we seek to conquer and endure. For those who call on the name of Jesus, may you continue to do so. Whether we face persecution from without or someone trying to have false teaching from within. And as they do, part of that conquering is for us who know Jesus to deal with that and to continue to bear witness without compromising. That is our calling. May we put aside any idolatry or immorality and wholeheartedly follow the Lord. May we put away sin and not tolerate it in our midst. As we prepare for the Lord's Supper today, I want to read to you Paul's words from 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22, as he pleads with the Corinthians to flee from idolatry. It says the following, <clears throat> excuse me, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he and as I read that, I just think of the words of Joshua. We, we can't be a double-minded people. We must choose this day whom we will serve. And my prayer is, Redeemer, that our words would be the same as Joshua's, as for us in our house, we will serve the Lord.
we will serve the Lord. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we just thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your patience, Lord, as we witnessed today your patience with the people of Israel. And again, Lord, as we witnessed your patience with the people of Pergamum, Lord, you admonish them because you love them. You love them, Lord, so much that you wanted them to repent and to return to you that they might receive that hidden manna, Lord. So, Lord, may we now, as we come to the table, reflect on these things. Father, help us to just think throughout this last week from the last time that we were here. And help us, Lord, to ponder on those things that we did that was against you in thought, word, and deed. Lord, in any way that we sinned, whether it be sins of commission or omission, Lord, we pray that you would help us to meditate on those things, that we would come with a repentant heart before you, knowing, Lord, that you will forgive us when we repent of our sins. And Lord, we just thank you for the work of Jesus. He is the bread of life. And as we partake in the table, we get to have a small taste of what it will be like in eternity when we truly get to enjoy that hidden manna. Lord, help us to meditate on these things. Through Christ our Lord, we ask this. Amen.